Thank you, Waldo. Would you take your Bible and open it, please, to the book of Psalms with me as we look tonight at Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is a psalm of David. It is a psalm in which he expresses his confidence in the Lord. He begins by saying, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in thee. That's his prayer. We don't know the historical occasion that this prayer was connected with. Could could have been any of several in David's life. But whatever it was, David was faced with some sort of threat. And so his prayer is for preservation. Do you need preservation tonight? Are there any threats against you? On our recent trip to Israel, I came to an understanding of something that has bothered me for years. My first two trips there, back in the 70s, I was disappointed and frankly a little disgusted with the churches that had been built over the so-called holy sites. It seemed to me to be a totally unlovely thing to do, to build a church over these places that were so special, and in so doing, to destroy the immediate environment, and often then to uh, encrust these special sites with some sort of marble or other markings that took away the original appearance of them. And I have for years just wondered, why in the world were those things not preserved in their original state? And our guide explained this time that 1,500 years ago, 1,800 years ago, they had no way of preserving these sites. And the sites were wearing away because of weather, and also because the sites were well known to Christian pilgrims. And they would come to uh, Bethlehem, or they would go to sites beside the Dead Sea, and just like a lot of us, they would chip off a piece of the rock, or they would do something to take a piece or a relic back home with them. And so they had to find some way to preserve the sites. And the best thing they could think of was to build churches over them so that these sites would be encased and preserved. David is here praying, God, there are those who are after me. There are those who are seeking to take away my life. There are those who are chipping away at me, preserve me. He is asking God to put around him his protection and keep him. He says, for I take refuge in thee. This is a phrase that David and other psalmists use often. I take refuge in thee. The word uh, take refuge is a verb that means to find shelter in thee. And it came to mean figuratively, I trust in you. I give myself over to your care. For example, in chapter, I should say, Psalm 7 and verse 1, he begins the same way. O Lord my God, in thee I have taken refuge. Again, In Psalm 11 and verse 1, he says, In the Lord I take refuge. Psalm 17, just over a page. 
and verse 7, he says something very similar. Wondrously show thy loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at thy right hand. So this was a common expression on the part of David. He saw himself as one who was uh, needy, one who was under attack, one who was threatened, and he saw himself trusting, taking refuge in the Lord. He said, I said to the Lord, Thou art my Lord. Do you see any difference there between the two words, Lord? Well, they're both L-O-R-D, but there is a difference in the way they're typeset. Do you notice it? The first one is all capitals. The second one has a capital L, small O-R-D. It's because they're two different words. I said to the Lord, all in capitals, is the English way of translating the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh. Or, as it's uh, put into the English often, Jehovah. I said to Yahweh, Thou art my Lord. And that is the Hebrew word Adonai. So we have here in the first verse and a half, three names for David's God. He said, Preserve me, O God. That's the first one. The name here is El, E-L, El. It is a masculine name. It is singular. There is the name Elohim, which may or may not be related to this one. But the name that he uses here for God is El. Preserve me, O El. Now, the name El was the most common name for God in the ancient Near East, not only among the Jews, but among the pagans as well. You may recall the Old Testament speaks about Baal worship and how at times, various times, Baal worship troubled Israel. The people of Israel would follow after the Baals. It's a false god. The Philistines and others uh, worshipped the Baals. The father of Baal was said to be El. The Hebrew word simply means the mighty. It is a name that ascribes great might and power to God. So this is not a unique name for the God of the Jews. It is a common name for God in that time. But he goes on to identify to make sure that we understand he's talking about the true El, not the El of the false gods, but the true El, the one who identified himself to his people as Yahweh. Now Yahweh is the most significant name for God in all of the Old Testament. It is the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. The name Yahweh connotes two special things to his people. Number one, it reminds us that God is the self-existent one. We are not self-existent people. We derive our existence. Where do we derive it from? From chance? From evolution? Of course not. From God. The Apostle Paul said to the Athenians, In him, the unknown God whom they worshipped and to whom and who he was trying to preach to them, he said, In him we live and move and have our being. We derive our life from God. But God derives his life from no one. 
He is self-existent, and that's what his name means. And it is as the self-existent one that he redeems his people, and that's the second significance of the name to his people. First, that he is the self-existent one, and then that this one who is self-existent has stepped into our existence, which depends upon him, and he has redeemed us. He is our Savior. It is this name that a number of times uh, he reveals himself through Isaiah, for example. I am the Lord who redeems you, he says. And so it is the Lord who redeems, Yahweh. And then this third title or name for God, Adonai, is a, a plural noun. In fact, it is a form of the name Adam. And it means in the Hebrew, the one who is ruler. Now what does that tell you about the first Adam? What was he made to do? To rule. That's what his name meant. God said, you're Adam, you're ruler. And he gave him to rule over the earth. Now this is not the name Adam here, but Adonai is related in the Hebrew to Adam, and it means ruler. And so David says, Preserve me, O El. I said to Yahweh, Thou art my ruler. And then he confesses, I have no good besides thee. That is no moral good. David did not consider himself good. He found his goodness in the Lord. God was his only good. Now what we're finding out here are the marks of a believer. The marks of a believer, one who has his confidence in God. In the first place, his trust is solely in the Lord. David said, I take refuge in thee. How do you know a believer? His trust is in the Lord. Secondly, he desires nothing and no one besides the Lord. Now there are times when we do, and when we do, we are spiritually sick. We're not healthy. But a healthy believer desires nothing and no one besides the Lord. And we would say with David, I have no good. There is no good in me. I have no good beside me except you, Lord. And then the third mark is found in verse 3. The true believer delights in the people of God, as did David. He says, as for the saints who are in the earth, this word saint comes from a verb that means to pronounce clean or to pronounce sacred. It's related to the word holy. Saints are people who are set apart, who've been cleansed by the Lord and then set apart to himself. He says, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Notice how he puts this. He says the people who are the saints are majestic Now, just back a few psalms ago, David wrote, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. And so he declares that God's name is that of majesty. But here he uses the term of God's people, those whom God has declared to be clean. And he says they are the majestic ones. The word refers to uh, a cloak or to an outer garment. 
In other words, one who wore a particular outer garment was obviously noble. A king, for example, wore a particular cloak. He had a robe, a garb, that denoted him as being above others, that denoted him as special, as a, a designation and a rank that was all by himself. That's the idea behind the majestic one here. And so he says of God's people, he says, they are the noble, they are the stately, they are the distinguished ones. And he says, in whom is all my delight, my pleasure. David found pleasure in the people of God. And I believe that you do too. And I believe that's one reason you're here tonight. And number four, and verse four, the mark of a believer is that he refuses false worship. David did. He said, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. That is the pains, the wounds of those who have lusted for, would be one way to understand this, <clears throat> who have gone after in lust another god will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their libations of blood. We don't know what he means exactly. He may have been, been talking about animal sacrifices. But as you know, human sacrifice was not unknown in some of the pagan religions of David's day, as is still true today. And David said, I will not participate with them. I will not pour out the libations or the sacrifices of blood connected with their idolatry their cults of paganism. Nor shall I take their names, that is, the names of these gods, upon my lips. What he means here is, I will not lift them up in prayer. I will not call out to these gods. And so the fourth mark of a believer is that he refuses to participate in false worship. Why? Because he's found reality. He doesn't need anything else. And because the Spirit of God is in him, he discerns the faults. He says, I will not participate in that. The marks of one who has confidence in the Lord. And then in verses 5 through 8, the blessings of one who has such confidence in God. The blessings of a believer. <clears throat> he says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Notice the various terms that he use, uses. The language uh, reflects the time when the division of the land of, of Israel took place and the tribes received their inheritance. Notice he talks about the portion, the inheritance, uh, the lot, the lines, the heritage. But what he says is, it's not the land that is my heritage, it's the Lord. He is the portion of my inheritance. Turn to Psalm 73 for a moment and notice what the psalmist there declares regarding the Lord. Psalm 73. And verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart 
and my portion forever. And so we have another example of one who says, the Lord is my portion, my inheritance. What are you looking to for your inheritance? Have you ever received an inheritance? Some of you may not be old enough yet to receive an inheritance. David says it's, it's not the money. It's not land. It's not physical things. He says the thing that really counts in life. The bottom line is that the Lord is my portion. And not only for this life, but forever. He is my portion, my inheritance, and my cup. Can you think of another place that talks about the cup? My cup overflows, right, Psalm 23. The, the uh, picture there, the metaphor is the same. The cup seems to represent God's provision, God's sustenance. And David in Psalm 23 says, My cup overflows. In other words, God provides for me abundantly. And the same idea here. He is my cup. He is my sustenance. He provides all that I need. He says, Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. The lines refer to ropes or cords that were used to measure off distances and uh, boundaries. And he says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And he's not talking about a piece of real estate, folks. He's talking about the lines of God's blessings have been dropped in his life in a pleasant way. And he says, my heritage is beautiful to me. You know, it's a sad thing when people's heritage isn't beautiful to them anymore. In that regard, I think of the prodigal son who demanded his inheritance from his father. Do you think the father knew that his son was going to blow it? Or did this surprise the father when he gave the inheritance to the younger son? Ever thought about that? I believe that the father knew what was going to happen. But that he nonetheless gave the son his inheritance. And was that inheritance precious to him? No. He wasted it in foolish living. You and I have an inheritance from God that sometimes we also take for granted, don't we? It doesn't seem precious to us or beautiful to us. It, uh, we take it uh, very casually. And yet we have in Jesus Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything that pertains to life and to godliness is ours in the Lord. There is no good thing that he has withheld from us. Let's never take it for granted, but understand how beautiful our heritage is. The first blessing of one who has his confidence in God is that his heart is content, verses 5 and 6. But also in verse 7, his mind is counseled. I will bless the Lord, he says, <clears throat> who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I will bless the Lord. The word means I will kneel down before the Lord so as to praise him. I will bend my knee before him who has counseled me. 
Look at Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, where we have a parallel passage. I like this. The psalmist says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Nations counsel together, don't they? They lay out plans. I can remember not too many years ago when we had this this marvelous peace dividend that we were going to be enjoying. Remember that? Because of the fall of communism, a new age had come. A new world order was just on the horizon. Almost sounded like Chamberlain a little bit in his declaration regarding Hitler. Nations take counsel together, but the Lord nullifies all of that. The nations cannot plan anything apart from the direction that God has designed for history. But his counsel stands forever. The plans that God has made go from generation to generation. And it is this God who has counseled us. He counsels his own. He says, indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Literally, do you know what he says in the Hebrew? If you have a good study Bible, it may tell you. He says, indeed, my kidneys instruct me in the nights. Now, we could talk about that a little bit, but we won't. You see, to the Hebrew, to the Hebrew, the kidneys represented the very center of the being, the place where emotion was, where conscience was. And so David is saying here, my mind, my innermost part, instructs me, it reproves me, it, it, it chastens me, it disciplines me in the night. Now, we don't know if he's talking about being on the night watch, like a soldier, or if he's talking about lying in bed, not being able to sleep, which some of us have experienced. But what he says here is that during those times in the night, my mind instructs me, there is a conversation going on inside of me. Sometimes I'd like for that conversation to be quiet so I can go to sleep. Would you feel that way? But there are times when that conversation is going inside of me, and we need to listen during those times. David had disciplined his ear, and he knew that there were times when God was his counselor. God was saying something in those night seasons. Now, whether this was literal night or some figurative uh, use of night here, we're not sure, too. He may have been talking about a trial, a time of weeping. The verb that uh, this word night comes from means to twist away. And so the picture of the Hebrew mind is that when night comes, the light is twisted away from us. Have you ever felt like your life was just being twisted away from you? Your circumstances were so tough to deal with that it was just like everything's being twisted away and night is descending on your soul and not your body. Well, he says, in those seasons, the Lord's my counselor. The blessing of a believer is, first of all, that he has a heart that is content in the Lord. He doesn't desire anything else. He's found his contentment in God. And secondly, he has a mind that is counseled from God especially in the night seasons. 
And third, he says that the believer has a future that is certain. Verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. <coughs> because he is at my right hand. Now that's interesting, isn't it? We think of Jesus being at the right hand of the Father, and in fact, at the end of this psalm, it says, in thy right hand, talking about God's right hand. But here he talks about the believer's right hand. Because he, the Lord, the Savior, who is self-existent, is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The place of the right hand was the place for a friend or the place for a protector. And so David is saying, The Lord is there as my protecting friend. I have set the Lord continually before me. Some of you may have gotten some Father's Day cards today. I did. I haven't had time to open them yet. So I'm going to do that tonight when I go home. It's a custom in our home. After occasions like this or after birthdays to take the cards that we receive and put them on the fireplace mantle. We put them before us so that we can see them and be reminded of the thoughts and the people who sent us the cards. It's kind of a special thing to do. After a while they get dusting, you take them down, I suppose, but for a while you put them there because you want them before you to be reminded. And you see, that's David's idea here too. I have set the Lord before me he says, I keep him there before me, so I'm remembering him. I'm going to get a little ahead of myself here and have you turn to Acts chapter 2 for just a minute. Because there we have a New Testament uh, quotation or citation of Psalm 2. Excuse me, Psalm 16. Acts chapter 2. Verse 25. <clears throat> For David says of him, says of Jesus, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence. Now that's not exactly how it reads back in our version of Psalm 16. There's a reason for that. In the New Testament, when the Old Testament was quoted, they quoted from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Old Testament that we have is directly from the Hebrew. But in the New Testament, when Paul and Peter and others quoted from the Old Testament, they quoted from the Greek version of it, and so you had it translated into the Greek, and there was a, a shift of some of the words and some of the meanings. So don't be alarmed when you don't see the identical words used. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired this writing to come to us through Acts 2, and when David says, I have set the Lord continually before me, the Holy Spirit is saying, what he was saying was, I, always, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence. So you see, David was saying, I've just put the Lord there. I'm always looking at the Lord, reminding me of him. He is at the place of my protecting friend. And because of that, I will not be shaken Picture there just being shaken, grabbed a hold of, and shaken, and threatened. David says that's not going to happen. And so the blessing of a believer 
is that he has a future that is certain because the Lord is at his right hand as his protecting friend. That's true of you tonight. If you're one who has trusted Jesus Christ, he is there. It's important for you to keep him before you. to Keep looking at him. Keep beholding him so that you're reminded of that truth. And then he elaborates more upon what that future is in verses 9 through 11. Um, He says, therefore, notice that, because of what I've said, he says, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou wilt will make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now remember, David is writing this out of his own heart and life. Okay? Now we're going to talk about some deeper meaning to these verses, but let's remember David's writing it. He's writing about his own experience and his own faith. And first of all, as he thinks about the the future of himself and all believers, he says, there is deliverance from death. My heart is glad. My glory rejoices. The word glory means weight or honor. And poetically it means the soul. And so he's talking about his inner person. My glory, my soul rejoices my flesh also will dwell securely or confidently. For he says, Thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Now, what did David have in mind? We don't know exactly. We're not in David's mind. We know how the Lord intended for this to be read. He tells us in the New Testament. David may have been saying, God is going to preserve me up to the point of death. Most likely, David had in view, in addition to that, his own resurrection. And so he used language to speak of that. Sheol was the realm of the dead, the departed. It does not refer to hell, the fiery hell, as we think of that. He's talking about the realm of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will you allow your Holy One, and he's talking about himself, first of all, your Holy One, because he's one of the saints, remember, to undergo decay. He's talking about his physical body as well as his soul. The soul is where Sheol goes. The grave is where his body goes. He talks about both of them. And so he says, I will be delivered from death. That's what my future holds. But then he goes on to say he would be resurrected to life. Look at verse 11. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. David is saying, this life isn't all there is. For after I have experienced death, there is still the path of life. And the third thing that the future of the believer holds in David's faith, is that he would enjoy the presence of the Lord forever. Now he said the same thing at the end of Psalm 23, didn't he? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, 
Then the lights go out and that's it, right? No. No. He says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so he anticipated the presence of the Lord forever. Now, having said what we believe David was saying about himself and his own faith, let's back up for a moment and remind ourselves that this whole paragraph, beginning in verse 8 through the end of the psalm, is quoted or cited in the New Testament. It's one of those scriptures that Peter used when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost. So let's go back there. Now remember, Peter is speaking here as God is revealing truth to him. Where did he get it? Well, I'll tell you where I think he got it. I think that Jesus explained Psalm 2 to Peter and the others in those days after his resurrection. I think he said, now, fellows, open your Bibles, open your scrolls to Psalm 2. I want to talk to you about it. And then he laid out to them what Psalm 2 was really saying about himself as the great son of David. And now Peter stands just a few days later, just ten days after Jesus went back to heaven. He stands on the temple steps and he proclaims this psalm to all the people. He's been preaching Jesus to them. Verse 22 of Acts 2, Jesus the Nazarene. And he explains about Jesus. He was delivered up and so on. Verse 24, and God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, and I believe he's telling us now what Jesus taught him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. In other words, these are the words of Jesus. This psalm was in his heart, in his mind, in the time of his suffering. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades is Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word, Hades is the Greek word. Nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life that will make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. All he had to do was appoint to it. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And so, on that great day of Pentecost, Peter opens the word of God to all of those people to help them understand what David was saying. So let's go back now to Psalm 16 and just conclude by noting how this summarizes Jesus' um, ministry for us. First of all, it speaks of Jesus' death. 
Thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol. What is death? It's the separation of the spirit from the body, right? The body is still here when death occurs. But the spirit is gone. The immaterial part is gone. And so the soul is spoken of here as going to Sheol, to the realm of the dead in the Hebrew minds. But the soul of Jesus, and of David for that matter, but we're thinking now of Jesus, his soul was not abandoned there. It was not deserted or forsaken there. Now Jesus had said on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou what? Forsaken me. That was a human experience and emotion and feeling that was with him at the cross. But truly God had not forsaken him. And the Lord Jesus knew that. And when his soul departed from his body, when he said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit, and the immaterial part of him left his body hanging on the cross, he went to Sheol, not to the burning hell. There are some who teach that, and I I really have a disagreement with it. He did not need to go to the fiery hell. He suffered the pains of eternal hell on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he said, it's finished. He didn't say, it's almost finished. I just got to go to hell now for three days and burn. He said, it's finished. And so when the scripture says that he went to Sheol, it means that he went to the place of the departed, to paradise. Or he called it himself Abraham's bosom. When the beggar died, they went to Abraham's bosom. Now, there was some proximity, some relationship to the fiery burning hell, to Gehenna. For Jesus tells us about Lazarus, or excuse me, the rich man, who was there and able to look over and to see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom in the place of rest and comfort and contentment with Abraham. It's to that latter place that Jesus went, but he was not abandoned there. So we have his death, okay? Then he says, Neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Here we have his burial. His body was taken down from the tree by the men. It was quickly wrapped up and then taken to the tomb in the garden that was nearby that Joseph had prepared for himself and his family. No one had ever been in there before to be buried. And Jesus was put there. He was buried. But God would not allow his Holy One to see or to undergo decay in that grave. We have his burial. And then in verse 11 we have his resurrection. Thou will make known to me the path of life. So we have his death, his burial, and now his resurrection. He was resurrected from the grave to experience a kind of life that was brand new. A glorious kind of life, eternal life. 
Thou will make known to me the path of life. And then we have another phrase that points beyond the resurrection to his ascension. For it says, In thy presence is fullness of joy. On that night before he was crucified, Jesus had dinner with his disciples. It was the Last Supper. It was the Passover meal. And then he said, Get up. It's time to go. They walked out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there they prayed. And John records for us a lot of the conversation that took place that night. At least six times, Jesus said, I am going to the Father. I am going back to him who sent me. Jesus told them exactly where he was going, not once, but at least six times. That's because they had a hard time hearing. Now, none of us are that way, but those disciples had a hard time hearing. And so, six times, he told them, I am going to the Father. Reminds me of a story of a man, a preacher, who was going to preach on the second coming, and his text was, Behold, I come. And unlike me, he tried to preach without notes. And he got started on his message. He wanted to deliver his text. And knew the first part of it was, Behold, I come, but he couldn't think of what came after that in the text. He forgot it. And so he stood back and he grabbed a hold of the pulpit and he said, Behold, I come. And he thought the words would come to his mind, and they didn't. So he backed up again and came up to the pulpit and said, Behold, I come. And still he couldn't get through it. You know, his mind had a block. Have you ever had that experience? He just couldn't get the next words. And so this time he backed up even further. And as he came to the pulpit, he said, Behold, I come. And when he did, he tripped and went right out into the front pew, into the lap of a little old lady who was sitting there. And he said, Oh, dear lady, I am so sorry. And she said, That's okay, preacher. You warned me three times you were coming. (laughs) six times Jesus said I am going to the Father and after he rose from the dead he was with his disciples for 40 days and he went back to the Father so they knew exactly what was taking place they knew where he was going in thy presence is fullness of joy and can you imagine the joy when Jesus got home and then finally we have his enthronement. For it says, At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Jesus went back to heaven to the presence of the Father, and then what did he do? He sat down. Not because he was tired, but because his work was done. He sat down at the place of authority. He sat down at the place of the inheritor, the heir, the right hand of the Father, the throne of God, he sat down because his work was complete. And he is enthroned in heaven today, declared to be the victor, the conqueror. And he has the keys of death and Hades in his hand. He is the conqueror. And we see him described in a wonderful vision of Revelation 1, don't we? That glorified vision that... um, that John had of Jesus standing there before him on the Isle of Patmos. The conqueror, at thy right hand there are pleasures 
forevermore. And so we have about Messiah, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement in heaven. You say, what has that got to do with us? Everything. Because we died with him, we were buried with him, we rose again with him, we ascended with him, we are seated with him, we are identified with Jesus Christ in all of his saving work, therefore we can have confidence in the Lord. And that's what this psalm is all about, the confidence that David had in God, his determined confidence. And so I hope that you and I can this week enter into the the life of this psalm. Understand what it says to us about Jesus and about ourselves and live in the joy of who we are in Jesus Christ and know that because of that, not because of who we are, but because of who we are in him, we can have great confidence in the Lord. And if we have people who are after us, if we have situations that are attacking us, with David we can say, Lord, preserve me. Preserve me. I find refuge. I take refuge in you. Let's pray. I don't know where you may need the refuge. I don't know what the enemy is that is after you. Perhaps it is temptation that is stalking you. And you are being sorely tempted in some area of your life. Ask the Lord to preserve you. Take refuge in him from that temptation. Perhaps it is fear. Fear of the future. Fear of the unknown. Say to him tonight, Lord, preserve me. In you I take refuge. Lord, my future is secure in you. I don't have to be afraid. Maybe there's some situation at work And it's just been ongoing. Will you say, Lord, preserve me. Preserve me. I take my refuge in you. Father, may we live that way this week and enjoy the inheritance that we have in you. And with David, may we be able to say we're content with that. That our portion is you. And that the lines have fallen to us by your grace in pleasant places. In Jesus' name, amen. Good night.